Great. Great. All right. The text for tonight is Colossians 1. We're starting in, uh, we're picking up in verse 24. Let me read it to you. And now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. It's so easy to read this text and then realize that you haven't understood the thing that it says. Um, there's this huge run-on sentence um, right at the beginning, and it's full of these sort of strange phrases, um, and you're not sure how they connect to each other and exactly what he's talking about. Um, it, it's, it's just a doozy of a text. Um, but for all its difficulty, for all its, its strangeness, um, the real doozy of it is its profoundly radical summons to live out the hero's story. This word is not for the faint of heart. It's not for those who aren't all in. It's not for the fence-sitters or the lukewarm or the wishy-washy. This message in the power and spirit of God Almighty, beckons you to come and disregard your life. That you might participate in a far greater life. One that's not your own. And it's, it, it's just an incredible thing. So, so get ready, I guess. Get ready. Um, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And it just starts off strange, right? Rejoicing in his sufferings. You suffer. You struggle. You know pain. But, but why do you suffer? Is it just because you're in this cursed world? Part of it? Because you're sinful and your neighbors are sinful. You have aches and pains and you make stupid decisions and you hurt people and people hurt you. And that's life. And in Jesus, praise God, you're able to find peace and, and even happiness despite your pain. But, but what if you could? What if you could not just patiently bear your sufferings, but actually embrace them with gladness? What if you could join Paul in saying, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you? That's a whole other question. And it sounds so strange. It's, it's a foreign concept. It's probably not what your parents hoped for you. That you would grow up to suffer and disregard your life. It's, it's not what you learned in school. It doesn't sound like the life you aspired to once. And Paul goes on and says, 
that those sufferings, right? He's filling up, he says, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. And you've got to ask yourself, did he just say that he's filling up in his flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? <laughs> There's definitely something going on here that we don't quite get. And we need to get it. If it sounds strange that, that something might be lacking in Jesus' afflictions, then that's a good thing. It's a good sign. It should sound, sound strange. If your pastor started teaching that somehow Jesus didn't suffer quite enough for you, that his humiliation and punishment didn't quite pay the full price, didn't actually satisfy God's holy justice, then red flags should be going off all over the place. And you should be asking, what? What? Your Jesus suffered once, the just for the unjust. Being the brightness of his glory, it's written, and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The work is over. It's ended. It's complete. It's the most glorious thing in the universe. That Jesus Christ is completely pleased with his own work and sits at the right hand of the majesty. And the Father is pleased and the Spirit rejoices with him in it. And the angels in glory, they look at it and they can't believe their eyes. It's absolutely perfect. On the cross, in agony, there he soaked up your sins. Your sins, the ones that defile you and make you filthy and cause you pain. There he hung to wash you and make you spotless. There he humbled himself to the point of shame and brutal death. And he did a good job. He did a complete work. He did a mighty miracle and he did it fully and saw it through to completion. He purged our sins. He's blotted them out. He's swept them away. He's cast them aside. It is as if they never were. It's all forgiven. It's all forgotten. It's all been blotted out. It's all been purged away. He's borne it all. Every speck, every wrinkle, every spot. There's absolutely nothing left. No price left unpaid. Your Jesus did not do half a job on that tree. Your brave young Savior didn't do 90% and ask you to kindly top off his sacrifices. He purged our sins. I'm not sure, I'm not sure my heart can believe it. It's, it's too great of a thing. It's too beautiful to behold that he purged our sins. Oh, that I would believe, that I would believe and go and sin no more. So what in the world does this mean to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? The key to understanding that and the key that unlocks the wealth, the riches of this text is the conclusion of verse 27. When Paul is talking about this mystery, 
And he says point blank what it is. He says, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How unfathomable is this story of the Bible, of God's story? The story of Christ in you. Just meditate on these words. Christ in you. If it's, not, if it's not mysterious to you, you must not understand at least one of those three small words. You have Christ. Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the king of glory, the creator, the head, not the tail, the head of all things, visible and invisible, Powers, authorities, dust and stars. The head, the humble, obedient son, the suffering servant, the lamb of God slaughtered to take away the sins of the world. The conqueror, the avenger, the one who lives, the pure and spotless one. The hope of hopeless men the holy hero, the supreme and pure being, the treasure of all treasures. Christ. You. You. What characterizes you as a human being? As a man or a woman or a child? What separates you from all other creatures? You were formed in the image of your maker capable of extraordinary things, taking the world into your dominion, organizing it, separating, combining, making it more beautiful, more productive, more efficient. You're a creature full of knowledge, willpower, the ability to sacrifice the present for the future. You can paint, imagine, sing, make music, sculpt, write, read, inspire, empower others with your words but you're a creature that uses your incredible powers for evil, for selfish gain. You're a creature that rebels against your creator. You're prone to greed, lust, jealousy. You're full of pride. Above all other creatures, and God gave the earth, God gave the whole earth to you to have dominion over it, but it's not enough. You feel the need to extend your dominion over your fellow man and make him be your subject, make him feel your pain, make him feel your shame. Many of you have seen uh, the video of George Floyd being killed by the police officer. It just makes you furious. You just want to tackle that officer to the ground and make him stop. Just make him stop. It gives you the urge to just vomit with disgust. It's because you're being confronted with evil when you watch it. But that officer isn't exceptional. He isn't extraordinarily evil. Each of you is capable of and is corrupted with that same evil. Granted the same position of authority, 
and protection and granted the circumstances, you just might have taken Floyd's life as well. And if you think that that's not true, you're fooling yourself. That's the kind of creatures we've become. So there's Christ, the lovely one, the pure one, and then there's you with your wicked and corrupted heart. There's light and darkness, good and evil, glory and shame. And then you have that smallest word, the one that contains the largest mystery, in. That Christ, that this Christ, the beautiful one, would empty himself of his divine majesty to make room to bear the countless poisonous sins of sinful men. How can it be? That he would unite himself to you. That he would allow you to be swallowed up by him. To share in his joys and to be the recipient of his love. How can it be? That he would sacrifice so much to bring you into his family. To become his brother. A child of his father. It's overwhelming. It's mysterious. Mysterious to the core. And it doesn't even begin to describe what it means, the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ in you. It's not even Christ and you. Right? That would be enough just to floor you, to put you on your knees, on your face in worship. But it's Christ in you. If only we really understood what that meant. If, if you could wrap your mind around the glorious mystery and your soul could take it in, that you could be the dwelling place of the King of Glory, that somehow, in some way, He could fit inside of you, live inside of you, work and move inside of you, that He would honor you in such a way, once the thought of it has been conceived in your mind, there's no other glory that could ever compare with it. Nothing could stand in the presence of this glory. No genie, however powerful, could grant you a kingdom rich enough and powerful enough with subjects to love and respect and fear you enough to compare with the glory of being united to Jesus. The maker and sustainer of the galaxies, the lover of your soul, the one true hero, Christ in you. All the glory you can imagine in this life would be like the glory of a firework. It goes up in the night sky, it explodes, it shimmers for a second. And the next moment, all that's left is this rotten smell in the air. And then you realize you're just standing out in the dark. And it's cold. And you're going to have to clean up this mess tomorrow. In comparison, the glory that is in Christ and it awaits his brothers and sisters, is like that of the blazing sun. Day after day, age after age, giving life to all creatures. A consuming fire 94 million miles away, but so bright and so hot that it will blind you if you look directly into it. Any glory you have in this world, it's all rubbish. It will all rot. Christ in you, 
Christ living in you, in your life. Christ loving, loving in you. Christ serving, Christ bringing the lost world to the Father in you. So Christ in you, that's, that's the mystery he's talking about. And with that in mind, um, move further back up into the text to the part where Paul talks about his stewardship from God to fulfill this mystery of Christ in you. Now stewardship is, is fairly well understood. There's a Lord, right? And he puts something that he owns, something of his under the control uh, of a steward. And it's the steward's job to dispense or to govern whatever his master has entrusted to him in a way, not in a way, but in the way, and in the spirit, sort of in the name of his master, how his master wants it done. And Paul says that he became a minister. He knows his place. He understands that he's a servant. And he says he's a steward, according to the stewardship from God, which means he's been given something that belongs to God. He's been entrusted with to, to oversee, to use it, to dispense it in the spirit of God to God's chosen people. And in this setting, what Paul does is the Lord's doing. What he gives to the church doesn't come from him. It comes from God, and God's the one giving it. And that's, that's the only way that we can call these writings of Paul the word of God. Because he stewarded God's word. God gave it to him. He was faithful and passed it on to God's people. You understand this concept in other areas as well, like stewarding God's money that he's entrusted to you, stewarding the children that God has given you. Those children are yours, but, but only according to the stewardship from God. They are his children. And he has entrusted them to you for a time to be raised in accordance to his good, perfect will. And when you do that, it's God himself raising them. It's God doing the work in you. Or, or as Paul says, his working which works in me mightily. And that's incredible. Whenever you act according to the will of God, disregarding your own desires and acting in his name, it's he who works mightily in you. Now, you understand this when it comes to money, or at least in theory, right? Um, but ask yourself this question. When you think of Jesus and his uniqueness, how often does his money and his earthly wealth come to mind? Like, pretty much never, right? What are those unique aspects then about Jesus that make him so special? What is it that you worship him for? Why is it him that you adore and sing songs about and not somebody else? It's his sacrificial love, isn't it? It's that he would leave his throne in heaven where he was worshipped by creatures purer and more beautiful than you have ever seen or imagined. He put aside that and took on the form of a man. And he suffered himself become a little child, a little baby with dirty diapers. He brought on himself the afflictions of exhaustion, of being overlooked for 30-some years, of being obedient to earthly masters and parents. 
being hungry, being scorned. He opened himself to be ridiculed, to be unjustly punished, to be mocked, to be betrayed, to be betrayed and beaten and bruised, to bleed, to give up dreams and aspirations, to give up glorious opportunities, to bear the brutal wrath of God, to set upon his shoulders the sins of the world, to be stricken by God, to be forsaken, to be crushed, to drink the cup of God's wrath in the place of vile sinners. Is this not why you worship him? Is this not why you sing his praises? Fly across the globe to tell of this Jesus, this suffering Jesus? Is not that the most, most effectual part of who he is? Isn't that what stirs up your love, what fills you with wonder, what makes you sing that he suffered for you? Not so much the good teachings that you would never have heard if not for him. Not that he fed you with bread or gave you a job or a beautiful spouse that you didn't deserve but that he bore your sins in his body. That he stepped down from his throne and allowed himself to be tortured and spit upon and nailed to the cross and put in the ground in your place. This is what stirs your heart. This is what makes your soul cry out. This this is the amazing gift of God by which he brings sinners into peace and fellowship God the Father and brings them this hope of glory. This is how he does it. And so when we talk about our master having uh, stewards to dispense his riches, we're talking about the unmatched riches of his afflictions. Not jewels and coins and, and houses. These afflictions, they're his. He bore them faithfully. He bore them mightily and effectively. And he calls his stewards... He calls his servants to steward these afflictions for him. He gives you that honor to dispense them, to bring them to the lost by the spirit and power of God, even in your own bodies. Lord, let that sink in. Is that really the case? How can that be? That you would transform your comfortable American church. That you would embrace your sufferings and, and, and bring them to the lost. What an honor. What a glory. What an honor to have. What, what prestige to steward the love of Jesus himself. How do you steward God's love? Well, how did he love? You can't do it in your own way. Some other way? Some other kind of love? How can you be a steward of his peace? Well, you have to ask yourself, how did he bring you peace? Not in word only or, or a comforting hug, but through his blood and sacrifice, through his life. Now, all of that should help to understand what Paul means when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. These are sufferings that you can rejoice in, knowing that they're full of purpose, that they're full of promises, full of glory, 
full of honor. They're a gift to God's people. They could be like him. That they could be his messengers. Send his precious gift to the world that doesn't have it. When you do that, you can rejoice because you're actually taking part in the life of Christ. Because he's living and working mightily in you to seek and save the lost, to redeem, to reconcile them. In these active, willful, loving acts of humility and service, you're actually becoming an agent of God's supernatural salvation. And the Bible actually says this, that if you, if you suffer with him, if you're his co-worker in this, you're actually his co-heir, his co-inheritor of the glory of God that's waiting for him. That's, it, I, I, I'm not sure that I can believe it. I know the words. I don't know if I can believe it, really. If I did, I I know that if I did, I would hate my sin. That I would love truly. That I would be brave. That I wouldn't shy away from the gospel. That I would spend myself in service. Lord, help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. And if he does help our unbelief, then we will rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that that they're full of purpose and that it leads to divine glory and that, that it leads to others having a beautiful, strong, new life. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. Now, Look and see and judge for yourselves whether I'm on the right track or not. If so, where is that track leading you? What steps will you need to take to be faithful to God's way? What destination does that track lead you to? It ends in the hope of glory. Christ in you forevermore. This message shouldn't be sugar-coated. It is just as radical as it sounds. No, actually it's, <laughs> actually, it's more radical than it sounds, than I can make it sound. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. And what's lacking in those afflictions of Christ? What's missing? If his sacrifice is perfect and in the most wonderful sense of the word, enough, if it pleases the Father so that he can look on sinners through that sacrifice and be satisfied with them and is able to love them and embrace them and call them his own, if that's what the afflictions of Christ accomplished, then how can you say that something's lacking in them? What's, what's, what's missing? Well, what's lacking, what's missing is the presentation of those afflictions to the people for whom He died. Especially as we become more and more removed from those afflictions in time and space. A personal touch. The ability to see with your own eyes. To smell and touch and hear those afflictions that happened once ages ago. People have an account of Jesus' sacrificial suffering, love for them. 
They have eyewitness accounts that have been preserved and passed on. They have the Spirit of God that bears witness to their souls. What's missing is a physical, intimate presentation of His sufferings for them. A display of His affliction to their senses in a way that affects them in their body. Something visceral. Paul says He's filling up in His flesh. His body is being put to use to present Not in his own sufferings, but the sufferings of Christ. To a world that's dying to see it and experience it. Paul isn't adding to Christ's afflictions. He's not perfecting or improving upon them. Rather, by using his body as an example, he delivers Christ's own sufferings to others. Not his. And when you pour yourself out in the name of Jesus, when you disregard yourself and, and your position, whatever position of honor you might have, when you disregard your rights, your sufferings are no longer yours alone. And that's what makes it easy to bear and to rejoice in because they're no longer yours alone, but they become that needed, visible reenactment of Jesus' own sufferings for the lost. That they might taste and see. How are they going to taste and see? And believe and repent and rejoice and be glorified and sanctified and presented perfect in Jesus Christ. When people see you paying a price to reach them. When they see you giving up your paycheck. When you interrupt your schedule. When you skip a meal. When you scrape your knuckles and when you, when you make yourself vulnerable for them when they can hear and smell and feel you casting aside your personal ambitions and instead pursuing their benefit in an intentional way, in an intentional way that makes you groan and sweat and cry and bleed even, that's when they have this visual enactment, not of your sufferings and how great and noble and honorable you can be sometimes, But they'll have a personal and potent and present presentation of the Lord Jesus and his own love for sinners like them. Now, if you're looking for confirmation and you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe not, that sounds kind of weird. Turn just a page. In my Bible, it's just a page, maybe two, back to Philippians chapter 2, 25, and see how... Paul praises this man, Epaphroditus. Basically, the Philippians had sent Paul a gift, right? He's a prisoner for the gospel, and they want to have solidarity with him and love on him. They put together a special gift for him. But the problem, of course, is that Paul's hundreds of miles away. Um, And he's not really benefiting from this gift. Even if he heard about it, he'd be like, great, thanks, guys, but, you know, I don't actually have it. Um. So what do they do? They choose one of their own. They bestow on him this great honor to be a messenger, a minister, to be their steward. And and Paul says of Epaphroditus, for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service for me or toward me. This is exactly what the message is. This is the example. This is... The illustration. He uses the same Greek words Paul does here. When he's talking about Epaphroditus. 
when he supplied what was lacking in their service. As when he does in, in today's text, when he says that he's filling up or supplying what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So the Philippians, they had this great gift for Paul, a gift of love that cost them something, a beautiful gift. But what's missing? What's lacking is the physical, personal presentation of that gift to the one for whom it was prepared. And Epaphroditus has that honor to be the one who disregards his life, to go at great risk, to fill up that lack by taking the gift and in his body suffering to make sure that the receiver saw it and touched it and smelled it and held it and cherished it and said, yes, this is a wonderful gift. Thank you. I needed this. I needed this. That's the same thing Paul was doing in his sufferings for the church. He's not making Christ's gift better or bigger or fuller. He was filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Christ has a gift. And the gift is his suffering. It's his dying. It's his living for them. It's his blood. God is bestowing, he's entrusting those sufferings to his servants as stewards to take that suffering and administer it to God's people that they might be healed, that they might experience it and receive it and glorify God and be born again and say, yes, thank you. This is a wonderful gift. I needed this so much. The words of Jesus come to mind. As the Father sent me, so also I am sending you. So we have this example of how Jesus was sent and what it meant. So also he's sending his brothers and sisters. You see, suffering in this life isn't just an accident. Isn't merely merely isn't merely a byproduct of a sinful world. God doesn't only allow pain to happen to you. Right? That can be. But more than that, the Father gives, He sends His children afflictions on purpose. Your sufferings for a sinful world are God's great strategy. It's the means to the end. It's not an unforeseen malfunction. They are the plan. Intentional suffering not only accompanies the proclamation of the gospel, but it is itself a proclamation of the gospel. You're going to suffer in life anyways. It's unavoidable. No matter how rich, whatever insurances you have, it's unavoidable. So why not choose the glorious route? The one that's full of honor. And embrace the sufferings of Christ to bring those sufferings to a lost people. The world will say that's foolish. They say that's so stupid. And if you live your life this way, they'll say you're a fool. They won't understand. But he is no fool who gives up what he cannot hold on to to gain what he cannot lose. 
right? Those are the words of Jim Elliot. You know him. Like some, what, 70 years ago, him and his co-workers, missionaries in Ecuador, went out to reach those like notoriously violent tribe there who have killed outsiders before. And they spent weeks in preparation dropping gifts from their airplane to sort of warm them up. And then when they made contact, the Indians turned on them and speared them, all five of them. Right? Jim and his coworkers, they had guns. They decided not to use them. They knew that they had a glorious future ahead of them and that these didn't. Why would they defend themselves? Better to lay down their lives for them. Do you know the story of Elizabeth and Rachel, two of the wives of those men who stayed on? Who stayed on? Two years later went back to that same tribe knowing what was done to their husbands. Elizabeth had her own small child, three years old. And they went back knowing what would happen. And the Indians, when they saw that, when they saw that these people were willing to suffer for them and to lay down their life, to take that risk, that foolish risk, they saw Christ. They tasted and saw. And they said, yes. And there in that Amazon, you have brothers and sisters who worship God with you in spirit to this day because there was a faithful steward of Christ's suffering for them. To suffer for the gospel is to personally participate in Jesus' salvation, in the one that he in the salvation that he won at so great a price. To humble yourself to the point of death as he did, or not even to die, to, to live. What's more difficult? You can't die for something unless you're willing to live for it. To humble yourself in that way is to participate in his saving work. If that isn't glorious, I don't know what is. It's what brings tears to my eyes. It's so glorious. So the question, I guess, is, would you? Could you embrace his sufferings? You cannot love others in your own way. Christ taught us what love is. He taught us for a reason. Because there is a certain kind of love. His love that needs to be shared and felt and seen. His love is actually costly, but it's also effective. It brings you to peace with God. That's what it does. Not through tweets and memes, but in the body of his flesh through death. Like we read last week. It's not well wishes. The church is now stewards of that love. That's the love that gives us that, that he gives us to pass on to other people in his name. Your life is short. Maybe 80 years. Maybe 90. Maybe 100. If you're lucky, they say. Right? It, it's, it's nothing though. It's nothing in the light of eternity. It's a light momentary affliction. And it's not to be compared with the glory that awaits us. The hope of glory. Christ in you. When you make it to heaven, you'll just be shocked and amazed how you ever loved food and sex 
and couches so much. How is it that you could have done such evil things in, in pursuit of such shallow, such small pleasures? Oh yeah, they, they were good. But they don't compare. They don't compare with the glory and pleasures that are awaiting God's children. What foolishness it all was, you'll think. The question for you tonight isn't so much, are you acting like Jesus? Are you pretending? Do you have some good days? Where people think, yeah, that must be a Christian. But is Jesus acting in you? Is he living in you? Can he be found in you? Is he reconciling the world in his body, in his sufferings, in you? Would you even want that honor? I think um, I'll pray. Uh, and then I'd like to end with, with reading two scriptures. Um, I'll read one, and then I'd like you to read one, wherever you're at. To just stop and know that the sermon won't be over until you've completed it. Um, so, you know, find your Bible, um, find your phone, whatever. Husbands, fathers, if you've got your, your family and your children and your spouses around, you take the good book, God's book, you open it up and read it to him. And that'll be the conclusion. I think that's, that's what we'll do. Lord, I'm not sure I can believe it. It's, it's too much. I need your help. We need your help. We need a miracle to believe this. That you would open our eyes. That you would open our eyes. That you would open our hearts. That you would create in us a clean heart. To see and behold that we could behold just a sliver of your glory. That it would change us. That we would stop sinning. That we would have the joy to do whatever it takes to participate in your life. To be known as your children. If anybody's out there that Christ offers himself to you all. He offers himself, all of himself and his sufferings. And he says, whoever's thirsty, come and drink. Cast yourself upon him. Amen. So I want to read John three sixteen through 19. Uh, Jesus, uh, I think that's 1 John three sixteen through 19. I'm sorry. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we'll know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So the text I want you to read at home is found in the Gospel of John. John 12, 
23 through 26. I want you to read that out loud so that you can hear those words. 